This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Fi Show. My name is Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a very special guest today. Tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Justin, and I'm recently retired. Nice. And that feeds into what we are going to talk about today, which is how you tell people about fire in early retirement. This is a difficult topic. And what do we call those people? Are they like muggles? Have you ever read Harry Potter, Doug? Or I watched a couple of the movies. Yeah, so the non-magical people are called muggles, and it's not derogatory, just what they call them, but... It sounds derogatory, though. It sounds, like, pretty bad. (laughs) It does, like, you're a muggle, like, oh my god, what did you say? You're canceled. Now we can't monetize this video. Oh, man, YouTube is going to (laughs) cancel us, but... Yeah, I I have a couple funny, quick stories. So, when I first found out about, about fire, I wanted to tell everyone, and I thought everyone would be super enthusiastic and be like, oh my God, that's awesome. That's great. I can't wait to do the same thing. Uh, And then I I, I told one neighbor about it and she's looking at me all kind of strange and asking questions and and the conversation kind of ended in an uncomfortable way and she walked off and uh, it turns out a couple months later, she told me that she thought I had a terminal disease and was like dying or something like that. I'm like, no, no, I just, uh, I I don't want to work anymore. Another neighbor, she would always see me like working on the lawn and working on my cars, changing the oil. And she thought we were destitute Mm -hmm. and and my clothes. I don't, I don't dress nice. I'm dressed up today for this podcast, but (laughs) this is as good as it gets. So uh, I was pretty foolish to think that people would just embrace fire. But enough about me. Let's get into the interview. Justin, what was your childhood like? I grew up in northern New Jersey, a land not known for its frugality. (laughs) And I I was really, in retrospect, very fortunate. I was raised by my grandparents. And they were not just great people, but they were a great example for me. And they grew up like many other people in that generation during the Great Depression, literally in poverty. And through hard work and intelligence, um, they made quite a life for themselves. My grandfather didn't graduate high school, but he and his brother had a manufacturing business that you know afforded him a comfortable retirement. And so that was a great role model for me. And then secondly, my grandparents, they just had no interest in showing wealth, they were quite comfortable just knowing they had money in the bank to live comfortably. And that had a profound impact on me, even if I didn't realize it at the time. Now I look back on it and realize how fortunate I was. Yeah. I think our grandparents came from a different place in life, right? They were children of the Great Depression. So they probably thought a lot differently about money than maybe our parents did. I remember my grandmother would always look at me and say, save your money. And Every time I'd buy something stupid, I remember one time I bought this yo-yo that lit up. She's like, why did you waste your money on that? And and I used to always joke to my sister. I'm like, ah, we're going to go over to grandma's house and she's going to harass us. But no, that's how she brought up and that's how what she knew. She knew to save money and not screw around with it. It was a valuable resource. And yeah, so same here. 
And can you tell us your age just to, to I'm 50. It? Okay. And last year when I left work, I was 49. Perfect. Was that kind of a milestone? You were like, Hey, I want to retire before I'm 50. <laughs> no, it just sort of happened that way. Okay. And what kind of work did you do? I'm a software engineer. Okay. One of those. That's right. <laughs> Fit in pretty well here in Longmont. So you mentioned that getting laid off in the Great Recession was one of the best things ever. And I, I was laid off as well, a l- little bit later in 2015, but it felt a little bad. You know, you feel rejected. But in the end, I was like, this is actually not a bad thing. I was pretty excited after I got over the initial shock. So can you unpack that? Why was it a good thing for you? Sure. Uh- For one, I think it also is useful for people today. There's a lot of layoffs happening, at least in the tech world, and maybe people will find themselves in a similar situation. So let me set the stage. It was the Great Recession. So for me, I think 2009, I was in my late 30s. I was married. We had um, two kids in elementary school. We We were doing pretty well. We had no consumer debt. We had a mortgage. But we had had some lifestyle creep, like, you know, so many people do in their 30s. I was pretty unhealthy at that time. I'd gained quite a bit of weight. I was not exercising regularly. And overall, I wasn't that happy with my job. So one day I I go to work, I find out I'm on a conference call. Everyone on the conference call is being laid off. There's nothing personal that happens to to many people. So I came home and we talked about it as a family. And, you know, one, I realized after the initial shock that – you know, this is why you have an emergency fund. We had an emergency fund. My wife is a um, in public education, so she had a stable p- prospects for employment and health insurance. And so she said, you know, Justin, what's the rush to go back to work? You know, maybe don't go right back. And so, you know, that was really eye-opening. And what did I do? For the next year, I, I went hiking almost every day. I found my love for the outdoors that I'd had in my youth, and it was great. I also could walk my kids to the bus stop and pick them up at the bus stop, so there was more family time. And then I also spent time revamping my skills so that when I re-entered the workplace, I would have new, up-to-date, and marketable skills. So all of those things were, were great. And, you know... As I phased out of that and was ready to re- rejoin the, the, the workforce, I realized that, you know, I don't really define myself by my career. My career is important to me. Uh, I get satisfaction from it, but I was quite happy not working. I could have gone on, I think, you know, hiking every day and maybe never grown tired of it. Yeah. So you took an entire year off. Was it plan to take that year off when you started it or did it just feel like okay now's the time to get back to work no it turned into a mini retirement i didn't use that term until many years later um but you know when my wife said uh, there's no rush well you know then i started thinking in terms of months uh, to go back and not weeks and then months turned into over a year that's super cool that your wife was so supportive the other thing, did you have any anxiety that maybe it would be difficult to go back to work after having that year off? I did at first, but, you know, I also had skills. So, you know, spending that time learning new things. And in software, you can build and show what you've done. So you can build open source projects and, you know, pretty quickly show a prospective employer. Yeah, I don't just you know, I have the skills I can deliver on that. Cool. Did you actually do that? 
Yes. Oh, you did. Okay. It's funny. Uh, when I was, I guess, trying to build up my resume, this was roughly the same time period. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll work on some open source projects. And I, I never did. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, you can, you can do this stuff. And then I was like, ah, I'm just not going to do that. So. so that was way back in 2009. And fire wasn't really a thing then. I don't think, when did Mr. Money Mustache launch? Maybe 2012. Maybe Jacob Len Fisker was around, early retirement extreme. Did you know about fire back then? And if not, when did you discover fire? No, I had no idea. So a couple of years later, we decided to move to Colorado. Also a decision that ended up being one we, we do not regret at all and uh, ended up here in Longmont. And it was in 2017 that an old colleague from a previous job contacted me through Facebook. We, we were Facebook friends and she said, hey, you live in Longmont. You seem to have a similar outlook as this guy, Mr. Money Mustache. You might want to check out his blog. She assumed maybe I did know him or knew of him, that is. And I didn't. I had never heard of it. So, uh, you know, I looked up um, the blog and it was it was a, a an epiphany, really. I had not seen someone put into words and really um, be an evangelist of sorts of, hey, there's a different way to live a, a, a happier, one that can result in a happier way of life where, you know, you kind of reject consumerism. Um, you, you spend less than you earn, you invest the rest, and then you end up with, you know, freedom more or less. And so that was an epiphany. You were all, you all already had the mindset, right? It's not like you were coming from the opposite. You weren't a big consumer. So would you say that Mr. Money Mustache put a name and maybe put, I hate the word movement, but maybe a movement or a thought process to, and not even that, cause you were already doing it, right? That's right. We were kind of, I'm naturally frugal and my wife also is that way. We got married in the late nineties and, you know, we started having a budget and we would enter into Quicken our receipts. You know, I think we loaded Quicken with floppy disks at that time. And so for many years, we would literally, you know, collect all of our receipts, enter them in and, and budget. And it was very val valuable for us. Later on, you know, that kind of level of budgeting wasn't necessary. But yeah, we had lived sort of within our means at least. And I was very lucky. My grandfather, when I was 18, suggested I create an IRA. And although he funded his retirement with CDs, you could do that in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, he suggested there's this company, Vanguard. You know, he had some account with them. And so from very early on, I was aware of Vanguard. And then something really cool happened. At that time, every quarter you got this paper newsletter in the Vanguard. And Jack Bogle, um, you know, he would have, you know, an article in there. So I learned about index investing and the importance of low cost funds. And I'm lucky that I was steered that way because, you know, I was never really tempted um, to do any other kind of investing. It's just always what we did. So when I learned about Mr. Money Mustache, it was sort of, okay, we've been living this way for, for you know, over a decade now, and there's people who embrace it. And there's the other side of it, frugality and sort of rejecting consumerism, which we were maybe not consciously thinking of, but now it was clear like, wow, it just really had a big impact. 
And then there were a few other things at the time, um, but most importantly, the simple path to wealth was another way where I saw in writing something so clear that validated both the way we had been living and then that, and along with the 4% rule, we realized, oh, like you can actually stop working way earlier than what is considered traditional. And so it made a big impact. Wow. So was it 2017? Is that right? When you discovered the blog mm -hmm. and you were put a name to what you were already doing. That's right. Okay. And before that, did you have like a timeline for retiring? You were just like, we're in pretty good shape. No, it's, it's the funny thing. It's like before, before that, I just didn't see retiring earlier than 62. I didn't have people in my life who did really. And so like who retired early before you were aware of the fire movement, who, who did you know that retired early on their terms, right? Maybe people who had been in the military had a really good pension from public service or were policemen. Those folks sometimes retired early. Uh, but other than that, like maybe truly rich people retired early. Right. Like or that was what I saw only. So I had no plans to retire early. Okay. And then it actually, I, I remember there was someone that I worked with and she was like a director and I was probably 34, but she retired right at the same time that you did like 49. And the rumors were like, she had a rich husband. That was the only way we could figure it out. But now it makes perfect sense that if she was successful, just save like 50 is totally reasonable. So once you found Mr. Money Mustache, you read Simple Path to Wealth, JL Collins, then did you put a timeline around it? When did that come about? I think my wife wanted to set 55 as sort of the end point, which I know like in the, the fire movement, that might be considered late, but you have to realize that's still way earlier than, than most people retire. Oh, yeah. So 55, um, but then a few things happened. One, someone I worked with a few years, maybe a couple of years after I learned about the fire movement, he retired and he was not someone I worked with directly, but we worked in the same office. So, you know, he was coming around to say his goodbyes and, you know, I had questions, you know, mm -hmm. I wanted to know like, you know, what was, you know, what was his story? How did, how did this happen? And he was so open about it. He's like, yeah, let's go talk, you know, have coffee. And, and so it turned out he had a similar story, you know, he knew who Mr. Money Mustache was. It wasn't really, I think, I don't know that he was necessarily uh, a fire devotee, but essentially he was. He told me, you know, I I'm 50 and I want to do other things with my life and I'm moving up to Montana. It's like, wow. Now I knew someone not only had, I, I saw this online community and read a book that, you know, put it in like actual terms, but now I knew someone who wasn't that different from me that did it at 50. And so then I started thinking, well, you know, maybe we don't need to go to 55. By the way, just to be clear, my wife still works. She's she's my age, and, and you know, I don't know how long she'll work, but we'll see. Right. Does she have to work? Could she stop? I think we definitely could both stop and make a prolonged mini retirement, and then we'll see what happens to the stock market. You're right; it's, it hasn't been the greatest of times to, to stop working. But I also leave open the fact that I may choose to go back to work. That's the beauty of it really is, okay, um, I want to pursue other things. I have the freedom to do so, 
But one day that other thing might be going back to traditional work. I may feel reinvigorated to do it. And if that's the case, I'll spend three or four months revamping my skills and I'll be hopefully ready to go back. Yeah, I think work gets a bad name from the fire movement. And I think that's wrong. I, th I would never go back to a traditional 40-hour-a-week job where you get two weeks vacation and all that. That's just shit. I don't want that. But it seems like we're more decoupled from work than we ever were. So maybe you could – a friend is wants to create some cool software and you could do it on your own terms from wherever you want. Yeah, I might totally sign on for something like that. Right. And I don't know, I was going to say, you know, the, I think about a traditional job, like the ones that we all had, and I'm like, oh, I could not imagine going back to work. D do you miss anything from those corporate days? There's a lot I don't miss, right? But there are things I do. Uh, software development now is really a, a team sport, right? <laughs> Maybe not everywhere, but often you're working in small teams and you're collaborating. And that was the most fun part for me. And so I really enjoyed working face-to-face -face with my colleagues, coming up with ideas, deconstructing them, and letting the best ideas result in what we built and the way we built it. And so for me, when the pandemic came and it was full-time remote, that was difficult for me. Some people love being full-time re remote. I think I would enjoy a hybrid, but I missed being in the office quite a bit. And being face to face with my colleagues and, you know, working together on the block, on the whiteboard, you could do a lot of that through zoom. It wasn't quite the same for me. Mm -hmm. Where did you live before Colorado? New Jersey. Oh, okay. Cool. And well, I know you said it was a great decision. What made you start looking to move and why this area of Colorado? We were, we had just spent, you know, many years in New Jersey and wanted to try something different. And our kids were at that point about to start middle school. And we knew that if we didn't move now, by the time they get into high school, they won't want to move. And I can understand why. And so we looked at, we were looking around at, um, you know, maybe uh, potentially Maine, upstate New York, and then Colorado. Uh, my wife looked for a job online, did a Zoom interview. And within a week, she had an offer for a position. And the ball was, was rolling. There was wow. no going back. What's your favorite part about Longmont? Uh, I like that I can get on my bike and go anywhere in town. I like to bike along the Greenway. I like to bike to a brewery, brewery or to a friend's house. And uh, in New Jersey, at least where I was, it wasn't very bike friendly. And so that was really f one of the most exciting things and not what we were necessarily like seeking out. But when we moved here, I realized, well, not only are the streets bike friendly, but there's bike paths and greenways and it's really cool. Yeah. There's greenways everywhere, which I mean, I liked, I've, I live very close to one and I guess you have a good jump off point right. as well, but I didn't realize how awesome it is. And you can go, you know, all the way to Boulder and probably beyond. And then I don't know how far North you can go, but I'm sure if you, you hop off here or there, but at least like 10 miles that way, right? Or North, you can make it. I've gone up to Berthoud and, you know, you're not going on bike paths per se, but you're going on like country roads that are yeah, not yeah. busy. It's just joy. Yeah. It's like through farmland, right. really. Yeah. All right. So before we move on to telling non-fire people about fire, you mentioned your wife was, uh, it sounds like she was mostly on board. So 
tell us about that experience. I know that's sometimes hard for people, uh, especially if one partner is excited and the other one is uh, skeptical. So how was it in your house? Yeah, right. Not the case for me at all. My wife is 100% on board and we've always had a similar mindset. You know, like I said, we budgeted together at the beginning of our marriage. And so we just see eye to eye with that. And And that's why, you know, when she encouraged me to take an extended break when I, during the great recession, it was great. And when I was starting to feel maybe burnt out quite a bit with, with my career most recently, and she encouraged me also to, okay, let's don't continue. And whether that turns into a, a mini retirement again, or a permanent retirement, we'll see. But you know, you're young. We're, I feel so grateful. I'm young. I feel great. I love spending time outdoors. And I have a couple of years, maybe more, to just indulge myself in that. It's great. Mm. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, I'm so, I, I think about this all the time too, that there's some blogs and, and these people are totally right what they say, but they go into the numbers and they try to scare people into retiring like later, especially if you're doing the early retirement thing, like 4% isn't enough. You should really go down to like 3.1% or whatever, because that's going to ensure you total safety. But you said something a, a couple minutes ago, which resonates with me. Like I'm way healthier now that I don't have a job. I've got time to work out and keep my keep my health up and eat healthy, more willpower and all that. So there's all these other benefits, non maybe secondary benefits, but just as important than the money part. Like, ah. yeah, and actually, you made me think of Die with Zero. Have you finished reading or listening I, yet? I, I am halfway through. All right, got to finish it. Have you read or? No. All right, I'm going to s- do you do audiobooks? Yes. All right, I'm going to send it to you afterwards. So I listened to it a couple weeks ago. I kind of shrugged it off for a little while. Are you familiar with the book loosely? No. All right. Well, I won't spoil it for you, but it's a very popular book. People are into it. And I was like, I think I kind of get the point. But after I listened to it, I was like, oh, shit. The reason why it's relevant is you talked about health. And yeah, we could save a little bit more money, but our health is very, well, it's limited, so it's great now, but who knows? We could get some terminal illness. You just get old. You can't do as much stuff, so now you could hike really well, but when you're, say, 75 or 80, you may not be able to get around as well. I think if you stay active, you'll probably be all right, but you know, there's just a, there's a timeline, and if we keep saving for too long, then you, you can't take advantage of it and you can't do the same stuff than you, that you would have been able to like be outdoors. So anyway, I'll send it to you. Don't let me forget. Yeah. We're going to get into the meat of the conversation, telling non-fire people about fire. And I realized just a second ago, I'm going to coin a new term here. Brace yourselves that I, we all know what mansplaining is, right? Which is bad. <laughs> it's toxic. I was a fi-splainer. So I, I would see people like, Hey, look at this fi thing and try to enforce on them or force on them. And, if the student isn't ready, they're not going to take the message. So I'm sorry if anyone's listening that I was a FI splainer. Although they're probably not listening because they don't give a shit about FI. But <laughs> let's, let's get it. pretty good. I yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. We should work that into the title somehow. <sighs> I'm a recovering FI splainer. Okay, Justin, you recently quit your job. What did you tell your coworkers you were doing? Were any of them like shocked? Like, hey, dude, you're like, wh- when I quit young, they all, everyone said, where are you going? What's your next job? So what happened to you? I was upfront about it. And and in part, because I had that experience a couple of years earlier where a colleague had retired and it was impactful for me and helped give me the courage to do the same. So I wanted to do something similar. I told people uh, I'm retiring 
And, um, you know, everyone was cordial. I, I don't know what people really thought, um, but there wasn't really the level of, of conversation maybe I thought there would be. And later on, as I reflected on it, I had second thoughts about whether I should have been so upfront about it. And I've wavered on it a little bit over time, but I still think now in retrospect that I would do the same. And I would tell people just like I did, I'm retiring. And I think that in some cases, some people won't get it. Some people maybe will even take it the wrong way because money is a, a personal issue. And, you know, some people, I don't know, but I think that if I planted the seed in some folks, it would have made all the difference. And so you just don't know who, who you may have impacted and maybe you'll find out years later. Maybe it was no one, but I think it, it, it couldn't have hurt. Right. And you, you said something a second ago, maybe they took it the wrong way. Can you expand on that? Like how might people interpret it? Uh, yeah, it's very much, I don't know if people took it the wrong way, but what I mean is when you're, when I'm up front, when I was upfront that, Hey, I'm 49, I'm retiring because money's a personal issue. And there's a bit of a taboo in talking about it in the United States. And many people just aren't thinking about the possibility of retiring anywhere south of 60 that I think, I don't know if it makes people think, I don't know. I, I just, there was always something in the back of my mind that wondered if people yeah. thought of it in the wrong way. Yeah. I know what you mean. Like there's a couple directions I think someone might go and that's like, we, they justify it, right? Like I said, we knew someone retired at 49. They must have a rich husband. Like that's the only explanation. So many things wrong with that. The other would be like, oh shit, I don't have my act together at all. I have no idea when I can retire. I just think I'm going to have to work forever. So then they just like shake it off and they're like, it's unrelatable. I don't understand. Justin's crazy. Do you have any other, what, what would you think like before you discovered fire? If someone was retiring early. Yeah. I'm trying to think how most people reacted when I would tell them. And most people would just look at me with a blank stare and that would be the end of the conversation. They wouldn't know what to say. And I probably would have done the same thing, but I hope I would have been a little bit more curious and wanted to discover more. Like when I discovered Mr. Money Mustache, at first I thought it was bullshit, mm -hmm. but then I dove in and realized it was true. But yeah, I don't know. That's hard. I'm sure I would have been skeptical of it, uh, regardless of what other thoughts I would have had. So this is a great one. And Carl, you wrote this question. It's wonderful. All right. So in America, our identity is incredibly tied up with what we do. So at a party, the first question is often, what do you do? So we're going to give you a tough one. Justin, why is this? Why do people ask that? It's the American way, I think. <laughs> yeah. And something we all have generally in common. What do you do? What, is, what do you do for work? So I don't know. I think that's the reason why. It's yeah. a tough answer or tough thing to answer now. But I think I still, I will say I, I'm retired. <laughs> if it's a conversation ender, so be it. But right. hopefully it's a conversation starter. And I'm very happy to talk about the things I'm doing now and that I'm really excited about. And there's a lot of projects that... I mean, I could talk all day, all day about it. And, you know, if I'm at a party and, you know, it's small talk, hopefully we transition into that. Right. And then, so 
we're going to give ourselves the opportunity. So what do you answer when people ask you what you do? Um, I used to say, I used to be in your phase, Justin, uh, and I, I've moved on past that. Not that that's a bad phase, just because it was so, it was such a conversation ender. So I, now I never say I'm retired. I, it depends on the person, but sometimes they'll say I'm a podcaster or I'll say I'm an entrepreneur or a home flipper, but I never say I'm retired because uh, unless if I really thought the person was going to be receptive to that or they happen to be at like a triple on meetup or something like that, maybe, but otherwise not. How, yeah. how about you, Doug? Yeah, same podcast YouTube. So a few years ago, people would look at me funny. I mean, even just like four or five years ago, they're like, really? Like podcast? You? But now people, uh, they accept it and they they know people publish and earn money on YouTube. So that, that usually satisfies folks. So one thing I try to do is if I really want them to know about fire, I try to get them to, a- to ask the questions. So they could say, I could be like, well, I'm a podcaster. And they could be like, well, what's a podcast about? Oh, it's about this thing called fire and fi. And then they might say, well, what's that about? And then you're not forcing it on them. You're guiding their natural curiosity and open-mindedness to the conversation, which I think works out better. I I still think I've probably convinced zero people to ever embrace this. I've probably actually turned more people away. I think I actually did turn a friend away. He's like, screw that, man. I want my uh, sports car. But you can have it all. (laughs) You know, you can have that too. You you got one. Yeah, Yeah. you can have it all. So, so Justin, do you... Actually, if you're at a party, I mean, I, I ask that question too. It's just easier. So do you ask like, hey, what do you do? Or do you have a better alternative question? I'm not great with small talk. So sure, I'll ask people what they do. Yeah, it's easy. Do you ask also? You're like, hey, what do you do? No, I really try to avoid it. My question is, um, and people look at me crazy when I say this, but like, like, what makes you really want to get out of bed in the morning? What excites you? What lights you up? And then people are usually look at me with another blank stare because... <laughs> It's even worse. They're like, ah, what's wrong with this guy? Yeah, like, oh, I'm going to go get a drink and then they never come back. I think he's like with an MLM or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, yeah, I ask like, hey, what do you do? Or I don't know. It's a good It's a good way to just like get someone talking. And then you could go deeper and you could be like, don't you really hate your job? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> there is only one letter difference between MLM and MMM. Maybe Mr. Money Mustache is just playing the long game. Like he'll have a blog post a year from now introducing yeah. the MMM way. Aren't you rolling out something with the uh, co-working space where if you bring on two members, then you get a couple bucks. And then if they bring on members, yeah, it's that ex- kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly. You were drawing the diagram earlier. It looked like a triangle. It, it does. Yeah. A, a triangle ad. Yeah. yeah. Do, are you interested in becoming a downline distributor, Doug or Justin? I, I mean, I'm already in, but you could sign up under me. Well, I'll think about it. So yeah. And every, every person that you bring on, if they just bring on two people, then I think you're through the whole world in like 30 days or something. Like I think that. I, I've read about this type of scenario. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if it works, but anyway, we'll show you, we'll show you the paperwork later on that. Okay, so another interesting one here. Carl, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'm just curious, Doug, real quick, back to this. What would be a better first question to ask people? It's hard, right? Because the whole point of small talks is to try to find some common ground so you can build on the conversation. So how do you find it? Because I think we probably ask what you do because that's what we spend the majority of our time 
uh, you're not going to say, ah, oh, yeah, I take my kids to soccer for an hour on Saturday. But what would be a better question? Maybe, maybe a a form of what you asked. So what are you excited about? Maybe like, are there any projects that you're working on currently? Cause then it could be, hopefully they won't talk about a work project. that's boring, but maybe it's a passion project. Like what we're actually going to talk about some of the stuff you're working on coming up here, but yeah, maybe something like that because it's, it's still related to productivity or like creativity, which seems good, but it's not necessarily like your job title. Yep. Okay. So um, yeah, that's a really tough one. That's yeah. a tough one. So Justin, should we even bother telling other people about fire? And if so, in what scenario? I think the conversation we've had kind of proves like we, at our core, we have something we, we do want to share this with people because we think that we'll find some subset of people that will, it will change their life as it did for us. Right. So I think we should, but maybe be uh, <laughs> a little more discerning in, in how and to whom we share it with. I, I think one aspect of it for you or one angle for you would be to share, like the best way to do this is to live your best life and let people know, but not in a bragging way for, so for you, you did this awesome thing. We'll link to it in the show notes about compassion tower, the structure in Longmont that was built a long time ago. You created a documentary and actually got funding and have all this awesome historical photography, like share that with people. And then they'd be like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, where do you have the time to do something like this? Well, you know, I left my job and this is just one of my passion projects. And I'm, and then they might think, well, I wonder what some of my passion projects are. What would I do if I had 40 or 50 free hours in my life now? Mm-hmm. Carl, do you think we should bother telling people? Mm. <laughs> I think we kind of do tell people through the podcast, but we're <laughs> preaching to the choir here. Should we? I have an idea, Doug. We can do this maybe next week. It'll take... A couple days for this to come from Amazon, although I'm on Prime, so it could be there in two days. We'll get megaphones and that'll we can borrow the squat box or whatever that thing is from the HQ and stand on Main and Long's Peak and like shout at people. Like sometimes you see in downtown LA, mm. they're shouting about religion there, but we'll shout about Mr. Money Mustache and that we can get robes or the dumb and dumber outfits like you've talked about before. And oh, yeah. With the megaphones, just shout at people from the corner. It'll uh, definitely get attention. Yeah, yeah. it would. I think we should, um, we've talked about music a couple of times, like we should make it a song, like really catchy and then they'll, they'll be singing it and then they'll realize like, oh no, they got, in our head. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I, I think we should, I think we should tell people, and I actually had a, a very successful, uh, we'll call it a conversion to the cult. <laughs> we should rephrase that, but the, it was someone that I had talked to several times and we, we worked together in some capacity, right? So when I was talking about projects that I was working on, I was very casual and I, it was kind of obvious, like I didn't give a shit and I wasn't that motivated. I mean, I was working hard on whatever it is that I deemed worthy, but I wasn't, this is like a YouTube project. So I was like, not, I didn't really care about the money aspect so much. They were like, oh, here's a great incentive. And I'm like, I don't really care about the money. Is this fun or not? So after talking to this person, a handful of meetings, I realized like, oh, I can give a little bit more explanation why 
the normal incentives were not effective with me. So I framed the whole thing not as like retire early. She's like, she was 25, 26. So I knew like could be really impactful only like in the workforce for a couple of years. So I framed it as like a work optional idea. And then she was like, oh, that sounds great. And I'm like, ah, you don't have to retire. Most people work or find something to um, spend their time on that actually does earn a little bit of money, but they don't have to have the corporate job. They don't have to live in an expensive city because that's where the uh, high paying jobs are and all this stuff. So work optional really seemed appealing and you know you could work wherever you want then just part-time maybe you were into knitting and you could work at like a knitting shop and like be around yarn all the time and like people were there that i don't know anything about knitting but anyway just an example so any thoughts on that like presenting it as work optional i think that's a a good way to put it and probably what i'll use going forward (laughs) okay what do you think yeah, I think it's uh, it's going to present like a happy medium. You're not you're not eliminating work altogether. You're saying work is still there if you want it, but you don't have to do it. It's not prescriptive. It's it's just it gives you options. It's flexible. Yeah, I like that. Okay, we'll write that down too. All right, Justin, we're talking about conversions to a cult. Do you think the fire community is a cult? No. Okay. What is the definition of a cult? <laughs> yeah, we'll have. Although, I, there, go ahead. No, well, there might be a few. If, if there's a list of bullet points that qualify for a cult, there might be a few in common. And I'm joking, but there's a f- fanatical is not the right word. But people can, are really into it for a good reason, just like they are in real real cults, right? <laughs> but there's not um, the negative sides that at least I don't see them. Yeah. It's a lot more flexible. I think, yeah, there's there's a list and it's like a there's a a leader. There's like a recognized leader, maybe some blind faith, something like that. Dogmatic ideas. I don't know. I think some people can treat it like a cult, but we're not. Wait, did you say dogmatic or dogmatic? Are you starting <laughs> your own cult, Doug? Is this do you have an announcement? I would. I hear it's great for taxes. And I just have to figure out how to We'll put like a little shrine back here. Actually, we could put it right behind that curtain there. Yeah. Make it even creepier down here. You've got the monk look with the head. You just need a, some robes or something, maybe some incense down here, some candles. I think we could do that. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, Justin, do you think fire will ever be mainstream? No, I don't think so. And it's hard, right? Because there's um, we are bombarded with marketing Um at every level, right? And it's more effective today than it's ever been because there's our personal information about what we like, what we look at, what we click on is available for for people to market things to us, right? Not all of which is bad, but it's it's just a fact. Um, I think that unfortunately, a lot of folks just don't think about what, what, what they find valuable, right? Because for me, for me, being frugal is not just eliminating unnecessary spending. It's about saying, what do I actually want to spend my money on? Almost like the, um, I was thinking about this yesterday, that to me, the Mr. Money Mustache is like the Marie Kondo of frugal, frugalism, right? Like, how does spending money bring you joy and eliminate all the rest where you can? So I think that it won't be mainstream. It, it just is a lot of folks just don't think about what brings 
what, how to spend their money in a way that is valuable to them. Or maybe they do so later in life when they already have a lot of consumer debt and it's maybe a much more difficult path. Um, it's also just not for everyone. Some people simply prefer, um, you know, um, I don't know, maybe they, they find more joy in, in things than, than I find. Right. So I don't know. I don't think it's for everyone. Mm -hmm. The whole, that whole discussion cracks me up because we just got an email a couple months ago. They're like, well, this fire thing wouldn't work if everyone did it because it re relies on the stock market. But like, dude, there's Chevy spending millions of dollars to get you to buy a pickup truck on the Super Bowl. And meanwhile, us frugal people can't convince ourselves to buy a burrito at the airport because it costs like six bucks more than it would at Chipotle. Like, <laughs> we're not spending money to promote, well, maybe a tiny bit, but a small fraction of what Chevy and Burger King and everyone else are spending to convince you to buy their products. I think it's hard to, I mean, and you were... I guess I'm piggybacking on essentially the point that you're making. You have to be very thoughtful and introspective and you have to ask hard questions and answer them and then take action on it. People are just too fucking lazy to do that. Like it's, it's hard to do some portion of it. So, you know, you were, you were instilled with the values that were really helpful, like from the beginning, probably as long as you could remember, right, Justin? So like those sort of things are really hard to teach when you're like, whatever, 38 and you, all your friends and all the people you work with are living a completely different lifestyle. So it's hard to like veer off, but it was kind of like, it fits your path like perfectly. It came somewhat natural to, to me. It's true, but many yeah. people do embrace it later in life and it's great. Yeah. Uh, I think that for there's also an ego aspect to it that's hard to, um, I think, deal with, right? Even though I've put a lot of time, my wife and I both, into thinking about what are the things that actually make us happy. And we can say to ourselves, like, I wasn't happier with a bigger home. I'm happier with a smaller home that costs less to maintain, is easier, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm not happier with a more expensive car. Like, those are things that are, are true for us. Um, but then, you know, you see colleagues or, or friends who, who now are at a stage in life where they're getting um, promotions and are, are, you know, achieving things that, that maybe I could have done. But And so that your first instinct is to think, well, you know, would I have been happier doing that? You just have to go back and think, no, I, I really wasn't happier doing those things. I'd rather have the freedom to do the things I enjoy. I don't want material things. It's just not in the long term making me happier. What are some of the things that do make you happy? Like your priority list, you mentioned, you know, a smaller home versus a bigger home. What are some other things you guys figured out? We just prefer time and in, in outdoors and nature. My wife and I both like in, in here in Colorado, it's great because we have four different seasons. So, you know, as soon as the summer starts to feel really hot and oppressive, well, fall's coming around. And, and so it, it's just, that and it costs no money, right? So those things bring us a lot of joy. And um, you know, maybe travel now that the pandemic is is behind us, thankfully. We would love to travel and spend money on that. Um, we'd love to go to New Zealand. That's purposeful spending. It certainly won't be cheap, but it will be worth it. Nice. Anything else? No, I can't think of them. Okay. It is so good just to be outside. We have uh, friends who just moved here a year ago, and 
And he was looking at the mountain saying, wow, look at this. I get to see this every day. And I realized I'd kind of forgotten like how cool that is. And now the mountains are especially beautiful. They're covered in snow and they look a little bit different every day. Today they were shrouded by clouds. I'm like, yeah, it's so good just to be outside and to appreciate that. How long ago did you retire? A little over a year ago. So for someone who is approaching early retirement specifically and wants to make a smooth transition, what advice would you give them? Well, you have to have the financial side um, settled. And I guess I can't really give advice there. One area I can give advice about, which came as a surprise to me, it shouldn't have, but it did, was after a few months of not working, I was great about physical exercise and things like that. But I realized that I needed to exercise my mind as well. You get a lot of stimulation through work and you, you come home tired because you've been thinking all day, right? No matter what kind of work you do. And so I realized I need to find things that are exercising my mind. So I worked on a software pa passion project for a few months that had a couple of uh, benefits. One, it made me realize maybe I was burnt out on my, my job, but I still have a joy for, for coding. So if I decide to go back, you know, I think that I, I, I can um, help me keep some of my skills um, current. And then now I'm working on things like the documentary that I just did. It's funny for me to say documentary. I'm a real amateur, but you know, I, I, it was a great project and I feel like I could use the word documentary. That was what it was intended for, but that exercises my mind. Other things like I enjoy um, hiking and creating videos about it and sort of narrating either historical or geographical um, relevant things that I did in that in that video. And all of those things are serving to keep my mind exercised. And uh, I just feel like in a great place because now I've got, um, after a year, I'm in a good groove where I'm, I'm good physically, and I'm good mentally. And so if you're planning to retire, that's the kind of thing you're going to want to make sure, like, what will you do? And not just what will you do uh, physically, but what will you do to exercise your mind? How did you realize that you needed to exercise your mind? Uh, it, just after a couple of months, I, I just, something I felt like, there was something missing and I just needed to make sure I was really keeping my brain active. And you, know, you hear about this with folks like, who retire much older and they no longer have the stimulation. And so you know that like, that's a fact that you've got to keep your mind stimulated. And is this not something you're thinking about when you're 49 and, and you stop working? Right. So I, I was listening to a podcast this morning at the gym. It was, uh, uh, Derek Thompson. No, I can't remember the name of the podcast, but it was talking about happiness. And it said, this is pretty obvious, the most important thing for happiness is social health. Did you struggle with that at all? You, like you, you mentioned how much you liked collaborating with people on the whiteboard and sorting out these problems. How did you replace that in retirement? It, it's definitely an issue in so much as I have a lot of free time, free time most of my friends continue to work, of course, including my wife. And so uh, I, I have to do things either on my own or do better about making friends uh, who have <laughs> more free time. I could do better with that, I think. Yeah, let's go for a hike when it gets warm out. Sure. What Actually, on that note, what are some of your favorite hikes around here? Oh, I just, I'm 90% done hiking every trail in Boulder, which is a very fun experience, especially doing it in winter. It has a couple of benefits now because I can, the Boulder trailheads, if you're not familiar, 
it's a beautiful place. They get very busy. So in the summer and on weekends, all year round, the trailheads in Boulder are not fun to try to get a parking place in. However, if you have time and you can go during the week and especially in winter, it's a pleasure to go hiking in Boulder. And so I've had a lot of great hikes in the last couple of months there as I've been working on this challenge to work to hike every trail in Boulder. So uh, Bear Mountain, all the peaks that you see, that traditional view of the flat irons, all of those peaks have been great fun to hike. And I love to hike at Rocky Mountain National Park in Longmont. You know, we're less than an hour door to door to Rocky Mountain. So we've spent a lot of time hiking there. And um, those are the two big ones. Nice. Yeah, Rocky Mountain's great in the winter too. You get snowshoes and like off and you'll look around and like no one else is there. It's the opposite of July. It's one of the secrets I think is uh, Rocky Mountain National Park is just as much fun, if not more, in the winter. A lot of those trails uh, even get packed down. So they get a lot of snow up there. But I find that generally I don't need snowshoes just because the most popular trails, they're not busy, but the trail, the snow is packed down. And so maybe yak tracks or micro spikes I use, give yourself a little bit of traction, but it's just a joy to be up there because, you know, of course, even in the summer at Rocky Mountain, once you get away from the trailhead a mile or two, mile or two out, you generally have the place to yourself, but in the winter, even more so. Yeah. Have you ever parked at uh, many parks? where they closed the road in the winter and then hiked up the road. Have you ever hiked up the road? No, I have hiked up Fall River Road, which is closed in the winter, but that's the dirt road that goes up to the uh, visitor center. Okay. So did you hike all the way up? Yes. Cool. How, how was that? Is that packed or is it pretty? I did that in the spring. There's a time where um, I think that the main road that many parks curve is already open, but Fall River Road, which is a dirt road, remains closed. So it was mostly dry, maybe a little bit muddy in spots. So you don't have to worry about snow, whether packed or not. But you, it's closed, so you have the place mostly to yourself. Got it. Okay. Cool. That's the road by the alluvial fan. That's right. right. Keep going. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to do that. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And I've been thinking, yeah, to walk up Trail Ridge Road while it's closed in the winter just to see, like, how I'm far sure it's walk great. Up. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I'm game. Do you want to? We could. We'll we'll talk about it later. Okay. Yeah. All right. What else do we have here? Okay. So one thing, we are in a time period where the market's down right now. We got hit with inflation. Your wife is still working, so that probably buffers you from some of these impacts. But has the economy or inflation impacted your budgeting or any of your expectations in this early retirement? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it, I, I'm old enough to have experienced the dot-com bubble, the period during uh, the Iraq war where the, the market was kind of flat and then the Great Recession and then the big downturn at the beginning of the pandemic. So from a that standpoint, I'm fine as far as um, having the, the wherewithal to not feel bad about market downturns. I can say it hits different when you're trying to withdraw yeah. during that time. So I haven't had to, we haven't had to withdraw a lot, but it does feel a little bit different. I would love it more if the stock market were going up, but we're, at, you know, it's just the way it is. Did you have any specific plans? Like, obviously you couldn't tell the future, I don't think, but did you have any specific plans to deal with 
such a flat period or a downturn? Well, because my wife's still working, it, it's not really too impactful for us. Okay. Uh, if, if we were both not working, then you'd have to do all the things folks talk about, which is you have to adjust, right? Uh, you might need to say this year, I'm going to spend less or, or uh, this year I'm going to get some supplemental income this year. I'm going to put off that trip to New Zealand. I've really wanted to do just to wait for a better time. Yeah. Are you withdrawing anything now or does your wife's job completely support you? So because she's in public education, she has access to a 401k and a 457. And because she's 50, she can do the increased um, 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 contributions, right? So that actually, the two of those combined account for quite a bit of pre-tax savings. So we do withdraw from our non-retirement account some because we're putting so much into pre-tax buckets. Okay. Cool. So you're still in like a hybrid mode. You're still saving, but you're withdrawing too. You're just moving money from your post-tax to your pre-tax accounts. Right. Which uh, you'll be able to access pretty soon. A lot of people don't know with a lot of 401ks, you can get them when you're 55. And I think with the teacher ones, those have additional benefits. You could withdraw even before. The 457 has special rules that are really beneficial for public employees. Wow. Oh, that's pretty cool. So actually we'll backtrack into a little of the finance. So you have a post tax brokerage account. That's what you're withdrawing from. Correct. Okay. And then did you do a Roth and then 401k or IRA? All of the above. Yeah. Okay. So you had, how did you manage the distribution of the three different areas? Uh, I think in the past 10 years, we realized that we needed to start contributing more to non-retirement funds because we had really focused most of our um, investments in 401k, IRA, both Roth and traditional over the years, right? And then you're at a point where we can we were able to start contributing to non-retirement funds. So I, w I wouldn't say that we had like a really clear formula for it. We probably could have um, made that adjustment earlier. It would have made our current situation where we're not eligible to withdraw from retirement accounts without doing things like Roth ladders, things I'm not an expert to talk about, um, a little bit easier, but that, that was our plan. Okay. Cool. It, it seems like you haven't had many challenges except for maybe you realize that you had to exercise your mind has there been anything else you've struggled with? And you had the opportunity to take retirement for a test drive. So maybe you learned something from that time too. What do you think? The biggest lesson was from that early mini retirement where I realized that I just didn't define myself by my work. And again, it's not to say at all that my career wasn't important to me. It was. And I, I got a lot of personal value from accomplishing things in my career, but not working, um, it, it, I just don't miss it in that way as far as it being a part of how I define myself. I'm quite happy uh, just having time to pursue other interests. So it was really no adjustment on that level. How does one go about decoupling themselves from your work? I'm, I'm thinking of someone we had on the podcast a while ago, the physician on fire who was an anesthesiologist. It, but if you met him, you would have no idea that he was a doctor. His identity is completely removed and always has been. Even when he worked, it was removed from his work. How do you, how do, you do that? That's a good question. I, I can't give you a, a 
clear answer. One thing I would say though is I, I don't want to give people the impression that you know it, you really necessarily have to. I, I really admire people who can achieve a work life balance and who enjoy their career and are able to balance life and work and do that for decades. I mean, I personally can't do that. I, I know myself now, I'm an all or nothing person, which attributed to bur burnout in my career, I think. So I wouldn't recommend it, but I just know that is not the way that my mind and body works. So I had to get to a point where I could step back and focus on other things. But I really do admire the folks that can do the work-life balance. It's a, a real thing. It can be tough to achieve, but those who can, it, it's it's pretty good. It's hard. We're so tied up in our jobs. Sometimes it's hard to even build a life outside your job. So when you quit, you might not have a lot to go to just because you haven't cultivated it all that time. Your, your job was your life. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to myself because I, in the consulting environment, especially when we traveled, like you're working on a project, all the people are, you know, away from their families and their home life or whatever. So it's really easy to get indoctrinated to like the corporate, um, the corporate atmosphere and then climbing the corporate ladder. And like, there's no, you don't know anything different. And I think for me, like I started working more remotely. So that kind of removed me. And then we like moved away to a place where there were fewer people doing that kind of work. So I, I feel like I kind of gradually like eased out of it, which was kind of nice. I didn't have to think, cause I, by the time I got laid off, I didn't identify as like a software project manager. I was just, I was like working on a bunch of stuff and I was like, I hate those jobs. I never, want, I never want to get that kind of job again. So I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that? I can only say like, the important thing, if if I can only get one point across, is to put some time into trying to truly understand what it is that you enjoy doing. And if, if what you enjoy doing is climbing the corporate ladder, by all means, that's what you should do, right? But for me, that wasn't what I, what gave me satisfaction. And, you know, that was, it's not easy to come to terms with that. Like, what is it I truly want to do? It, it may not be easy to even know what it is. And then later it may not be easy to accept what it is, but you know, it, so if, if it's, you love your career, then by all means, that's what, what you should do. But if your joy is in something else then find a way to do it. Did you enjoy So one thing I personally struggle with is I just like to make money. I don't even care what it is like flipping houses or writing software. Did you enjoy making money or? Yes. Okay. And how about investing? Like I, I probably look at my accounts more than I should multiple times per day, but it's like my entertainment. But I, I don't think that's healthy either because you're, you become too focused on that and not life. I'm lucky in that I, I naturally look at my investment accounts more often when the market is doing well than when it is not doing well, I feel yeah. <laughs> so I don't need to get, um, I get the benefits of both worlds where it's right when it's doing well, I check in regularly and I get that little dopamine hit. And yeah. when it's not doing well, you know, I, I do what, what, uh, JL Collins recommends is, which is, I think, you know, not too often. <laughs> nice. 
I think I, I do that too. It's like we know ourselves well enough. Like, oh, check when it's a, when it's going to be good news. <laughs> so, do you still you check every day? Yeah, I, at the end of the year when things were going crazy, I did a whole bunch of moves which were unplanned, but I just thought there was opportunity there, so I, I pulled the trigger. But it doesn't cause me. The one thing is, it doesn't cause me anxiety. It's my version of watching TV. I guess it's entertainment to me. Gotcha. So, Carl, you have a, a note here. Why do you think? that fire is the best life hack ever. Yeah, I, I think Justin really epitomizes that. You're living your best life. You're in better health. You're working on these passion projects. Uh, and you had a healthy relationship with work. You fully acknowledge that you might go back someday if that feels like the right thing to do. But fire has freed you and given you the options to do whatever you want. I'm so thankful I found this. So one thing that I'd like to ask you about, Justin, on the same vein is, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't discover Mr. Money Mustache, like with this whole, like you mentioned, you don't know anyone who retires before 62. Would the thought have ever even come across my mind that I didn't have to work? Like I could have, I don't know if this would have happened, but maybe I would have seen myself in a place or I would have been in a place where I'm like 65 and have like $12 million. And then I would have thought back like, dude, you could have stopped this like a decade and a half ago or two decades ago. What do you, what do you think? I don't think I would have had the courage to step away from work without Mr. Money Mustache, the simple path to wealth, and the, the gentleman that I knew personally from work who had done it himself. Those things had a big impact on me. And I would have continued along the road that you're saying, I, I think, because I just didn't know there was another option. It, it sounds silly now to, to not know, but I really didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, like my dad retired, he was a firefighter. He retired when he was 49 and I still didn't fucking put it together. I was like, oh, I wish I could have, you know, I've already, I'm like starting my career. Now it's too late for me to be a firefighter, but I never thought, oh, you could just like do the math backwards and then figure out what you need to retire. Yeah. It's obvious now. Doug, do you think my classification of a life hack, is that an accurate way to describe fire? I think... Sure. I don't, I don't have an issue with it. Yeah. Okay. Life hack. Yeah. And do you think it's the best life hack ever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we need to create a list of other life hacks so we could like rank them. Maybe we could come up with like top 100. Do you have any life hacks where you're like, oh man, I'll, I'll give you some time to think. I like to go to Sam's or the grocery store on like Tuesday or Wednesday, like morning, like midday, usually mainly senior citizens in there. No one's in there. So did you have any kind of life hacks like that? Well, I do enjoy that as well. Yeah. But my greatest life hack, I think, when it came to investing was just my natural laziness. It really was. <laughs> a, I just didn't yeah. ever feel inclined to put in the effort to get to the point where I felt comfortable, like, oh, I think I can beat the market. And it's a whole other discussion, right? But my natural laziness was like, you know what? I read in those In the Vanguard newsletters back when I was 18, how low cost index um, fund investing was like, for most people, the best way. And that was it. I never needed to hear another thing. So my laziness, I think on that front was my greatest life hack. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You found out about Vanguard when you were 18. That's nuts. Could you imagine? God. Yeah. I was in my, I was past 43. So I didn't really, I think I'd heard about it in passing, but it never piqued my interest enough to read anything about it. I didn't even know what an index fund was. And, and, 
And again, I'd heard of it, but I'd never thought to research it until like, it's probably 45 or something like that. I don't know. No, it was a little bit younger, but in my 40s, definitely. I, I could have done much better, of course, as far as having a higher savings rate. And I think in the early days, I, I put a lot of my investments in balanced funds, maybe things I wouldn't do today, mm -hmm. right? I, I would just satisfy with S&P 500 or VTSAX at the time. But still, I mean, a Vanguard balanced fund uh, fee is way lower than what you're going to see elsewhere or yep. in a lot of places anyway better than the whole life life insurance policy that I got around the same time. Okay. So as we're wrapping up here, what does a perfect day look like? I can tell you, but it depends a little bit on the time of year, but let's assume it is uh, warm here in Colorado. My perfect day is a couple of hours of, of relaxing time in the morning and then going up into the mountains with my wife, preferably. We like to hammock, so we'll go up to the Roosevelt National Forest. We have these backpacking hammocks that are really light. We'll just go find a great spot. We'll hike for a bit, set up the hammocks, relax, have some snacks, have some tea, and just relax. It, it's just, I don't know if I'll ever grow tired of it. <laughs> That's great. So did you bring like a little stove up there to like heat up water for tea? Or I'll what do bring you do? generally a thermos, but okay. sometimes I'll bring a stove. Sure. And then, you know, now I have also more time in the evening. I, I like to watch movies. I, I forgot how much I loved movies. And yeah. so I, I've, I've watched a lot of movies the last year um, going back. And I used the library, by the way, as my personal uh, <laughs> blockbuster. <laughs> I'm there all the time. I still get them on DVD from the library. It's great. It's, it gives me, gives me somewhere to go if I have nothing to do. And I come home, I watch a, a, an old movie, uh, everything from film noir to eighties movies. I just watched pretty in pink this week. I hadn't seen it, you know, since the eighties. It was great. It's pretty awesome. It's a good library here. Yeah, it is awesome. I was in the library real quick, like a week ago, and the thought I had, I'm standing in here with all these books. Like, I could go in there and spend hours. Like, I would spend like, I would give them 100 or 200 bucks a month just to have a membership here, but it's free. Our tax dollars pay for it. It's a, so good. A nice life, life hack you can get from our public library is they have a backpack that you can borrow that has a state park pass. And so you can grab that, go to the state park, and you have a free pass. Nice. Nice. All right. So... Where should people find you? I'm on the social medias. I can give you guys my links. I'm on Instagram and YouTube. Funny enough, TikTok is uh, where my, my little videos have been more, most popular. I'm certainly not um, a, a star by any means, but that's where I've found most of my popularity thus far. That's cool. So do you, you're doing dances, I take it, huh? <laughs> no. No, no I, I just do these like 30 <laughs> to 60 seconds of like uh, vlogumentaries. I might go, for example, up to a glacier up in the Indian Peaks wilderness. And so I'll, I'll film that and then I'll include some geographical information about it. Uh, or there's a recent, did you guys know there's a giant soup can up in Fort Collins that was created by Andy Warhol? I had no idea. I just found out about it a couple of months ago. And this is a nice thing. I, I found out about it and I was like, well, let me take a drive up there. And so I did like a little 45 second documentary about how this giant Campbell soup can, you know, in that Andy Warhol style was literally created by Andy Warhol in conjunction with um, Colorado State University. And it still sits out there today. So those are a couple of examples of wow. what I do. That's cool. Yeah. We'll get the links from you. So they'll be in the show notes and description. So thanks a lot, Justin. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. What did you have for breakfast today? Eggs. Eggs. How, how do you make your eggs? Um, scrambled. Okay. <laughs> how many eggs? Uh, two. All right. Scrambled eggs. So do you have a good secret to making eggs? Like I, sometimes you go to a good restaurant or one of my neighbors makes really good eggs, scrambled eggs. And then w- when I make them, they're like a two out of 10. And when he makes them or the fancy restaurant, it's like a nine out of 10. So what is the secret to making good scrambled eggs? Mine are probably one out of 10 because I'm pretty lazy. I literally crack them into the pan. Like I'm making eggs over easy or sunny side up, scramble them with a plastic spoon right there. And that's it. (laughs) Yeah. I've heard some people say you need to add milk or sour cream, or you need to get a whisker to introduce oxygen or air Mm -hmm. into the mix, make it fluffy. yeah, those are the right ways to do it, not the way I do it. <laughs> and I'll I'll throw in. I cook all the time, and I've been getting into eggs a little bit more. So I watched a couple of YouTube videos. Some people, so they, I, I do use a whisk and like whip it up. It helps. I don't think it matters a ton. Sometimes I'll put sour cream or milk if we have it, but butter in the pan. So butter always makes it better. So put some butter in there. And then I saw this guy who basically he was, he had butter in the pan, but then he put in like another couple tablespoons of butter into the eggs and just like kept, you know, stirring it and like really gradually incorporating it. So it was like an emulsion and it's like just so much richer because there's all this butter in there. Sounds good. Yeah. That nullifies all the health benefits of the eggs too, which is Good. Yeah. Butter's good, right? It's now good butter's again. good now, yeah. right? Okay. Margarine is bad, right? The trans fats <laughs> yeah, yeah, or yes. whatever. Yeah, butter's fine. Get grass fed, whatever, and yeah, just don't eat bread with it. I look forward to the day when broccoli is bad. Like, <laughs> don't eat broccoli anymore. Like green vegetables are shit. <laughs>